Well, if you have your Bible today and you want to follow along, we've tried to do this a couple of times and um, had some audio issues earlier today. So I'm trying to re-record this in my office and I'm praying that it works. We're going to go through everything. It looks like it's recording. So I'm just going to give you the message today that was preached earlier today and hopefully um, hopefully it still challenges you and everything like that. So again, I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, um, verse 5 is where we're going to begin reading. And we're looking today at leadership and servanthood. We're continuing that series. Uh, but today it's leadership and servanthood at your job. So like I said, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. But just like in previous weeks, we're going to look at Romans 15, 5 through 6. Which reads, now may the, excuse me, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the challenge to be in one accord means to be in one passion. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's that's difficult enough to do that in our marriage and in our home and in our church, but it seems like it's almost impossible for the Christian at times to be in one accord with, say, their co-workers or their boss. So we have to look at how God, through the Apostle Paul, challenges us to rise to that challenge. We began this series looking at marriage. Marriage is the first human institution that God created. Last week, we looked at leadership and servanthood within the home and with our children because God commanded before the fall of man, God told mankind in Genesis 1.28, it says he blessed him and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's to have a family. Now, after the fall, God tells Adam, things aren't going to be easy for you anymore. You're going to have to work. He said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So God gave us marriage, he gave us family, and our sin, in our sin, he gave us the task to work, to have a job in order to provide for ourselves and for our families. And since that time, Mankind has either been working over other men or working for other men in one fashion or another. So we read in our text, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now you may hear this text. You may even read this text and say to yourself, well, I'm not a slave. This doesn't apply to me. And I promise that I will address that as we go forward. Um, 
But uh, the principles, excuse me, sorry, I, had, I lost my place in my notes for a second there. Uh, the principles apply to our own workplace. Now, whether we're an employer or an employee, we see God's hierarchy within the modern workplace established within this text. It's my hope, it's my genuine prayer that from this message today, those who are unsatisfied in their jobs, that they may find a renewed joy within their work. For those who do enjoy their work, a renewed sense of worship within the workplace, as we do all things, though doing them as though we're doing them for the Lord himself. For those who are retired, maybe this is just a tool for your discipleship toolbox. Maybe you won't ever work again for anyone ever again. But in your discipleship of younger believers or or simply counsel of them, you know, you're going to find a tool, something you can mix in with your own life advice as you help others grow in Christ to, towards maturity. Now, like we've said in previous weeks, God has a formula for the healthy environment, the healthy work environment, and so on. And it is simply this. If you're taking notes, I want to write this down. In all we do, we work as though working for Christ. I'll say that again. In all we do, we work as though working for Christ. Slavery is a hot topic in our nation. Even now, over 150 years after it was abolished in the United States, we still see the echoes of pain it has caused. But that is sin. That is what it does. Its consequences have a ripple effect for generations. In the same way, any type of relationship that's carried out in a sinful way, we see the damages that it causes. In this series, we looked at marriage, for example, and in a marriage where one spouse abuses their role, abuses their spouse in an effort to maintain power over them, even if they are supposed to be the leader in the home, if they do it wrong, it will cause much pain. In the relationship between a parent and a child, Paul warns fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and and instruction of the Lord. Because if a parent is abusive, the pain and damage lasts for generations. The same is true in the workplace and the same is true in the church, which we're going to see beginning next week. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says very clearly how the worker should relate to those placed in authority over him or her. And as we close, we'll see what these he says to do for those who have people entrusted to their care. But the principle remains. In all we do, we all work as though working for Christ himself. Now we turn to verse 5 once again. Paul begins by describing the worker or the slave. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Well, here's a little history for you. If you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm not a slave. This does not apply to me. That's fair. And, you know, America did abolish slavery in 1865. We added the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And sometimes people will say Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. But if you really read what he's saying... He's clearly saying that any state that would join the Union going forward would be a free state. It was Lincoln's belief that the end of slavery had to come much slower to be grandfathered out. This would appease the slave-owning Democrats of the South and make for a more peaceful nation after the country had been ripped apart by civil war. Of course, that didn't happen. Lincoln was assassinated, and that did not help the South. 
as Lincoln would have shown more sympathy to them than they were shown after the war. But we're a free nation today, right? No, not really. We have loans, we have bills, we are taxed more by our government now than any time before in our history. Remember that it was a three penny per pound tax that got the colonists so upset they they dressed up like Mohawk tribesmen and dumped tea into Boston Harbor. Now, unless you grow all your own food, own your own house, and own all your own land, paid cash for all your vehicles that you fuel with your own gasoline you've somehow processed and synthesized, and somehow managed to not pay property taxes, well, you need money. And to get money, you need to work. So in a sense, you are a slave. Now, if you're independently wealthy or you're retired or Amish, Maybe you can make the argument this passage does not apply to you somehow, but the principles within absolutely do. I say all of that to come to this conclusion. We have to understand slavery as Paul understood slavery. And in the era in which he was writing, it was not the antebellum South, which we view slavery through. It was vastly different. Paul saw slavery through the lens of the Roman culture he was living in and the Jewish culture he'd been raised in. We, on the other hand, look at slavery through the lenses of American history glasses, and we think we know it all. We talk about how African tribes would sell other African tribes to white slave traders who'd pile them onto ships like cattle and take them all over the world and sell them to those who would mistreat them. That is not the slavery of the Roman Empire. It is definitely not the slavery of the Old Testament either. That's sort of Slavery between the Roman and the the, uh, Old Testament was similar, but it was not similar to the antebellum South. In fact, the Bible condemns that type of slavery. I know over the years, men have used the Bible to justify that type of slavery, but scripture actually condemns what was going on in the South pre-Civil War. Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from among you. But someone could submit themselves to you as a slave in order to pay off a debt. That's what the Old Testament was trying to establish with its type of slavery. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. In other words, a slave was guaranteed to be freed at some point. And abusing somebody like that was was foolish. It was condemned also, Exodus 21, 26, and 27. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. The same thing applies if, if a slave owner knocks out a tooth. If a man was a good master in the Old Testament era, though, if a man wanted to stay with his master... Then his master shall bring him to God. I'm reading Exodus 21, 6. His master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently. Later, David would write in Psalm 46, My ears you have opened. And a more literal literal translation, maybe you have pierced my ears. Meaning God has made me his slave for life. And I want to hear his word. In Roman culture, it would be very similar. You could choose a good master to help you pay off your debt and maybe want to work for him for life. But there were cruel masters too. And although abuse did happen and seems to be more common than we often realize, it was frowned upon. A good master who owned slaves was good to them, treated them fairly, and provided for them. While there were cruel masters or or lords, and we'll get into that, 
after a while, no matter how rich they were, no matter how uh, anybody, how, how well they would provide for their people, people would want to avoid them eventually. Unusually cruel masters would be prosecuted if their slaves kept turning up beaten to death or something like that. Scripture gives us a window, actually, to peek into this type of life in Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner, a slave master. And a slave was who was once considered useless to Philemon's household was sent back, was returning under Paul's directions. And Paul urged Philemon to welcome him back and free him. This useless slave, as he's called, uh, had the name Onesimus, which really means useful. He had been very useful in Paul's ministry. The whole ordeal was to be a civil discussion, an act done within the Roman law and within Christian love. Philemon's a very short book, by the way, and worth study. In Roman culture, slavery was as common as breathing, but uprisings did happen. And by no means do I want to say slavery was ever perfect or try to condone that act. Not at all, but in Roman culture, slavery was very common. And when the uprisings happened, it was usually a revolt intended not to end all slavery, but to free slaves from, an, a particular, from a particularly abusive master. So Paul's not writing here to abolish slavery, but to tell the slaves and the masters how they are to interact with one another in a way that is pleasing to Christ. Paul uses this word for master, and we need to remember this going forward. It's the Greek word kurios, and it is often translated as Lord. So slaves, obey your lords. But he quantifies that by saying, according to the flesh. According to the flesh is a common phrase Paul uses. In fact, he uses a total of 20 times throughout his letters. And it means in a natural sense or at the natural level. In other words, these men are only your masters on earth. In the same way, your boss is not the boss of your home. He's not the boss of your morality. He's not the boss of your spirituality, nor does he get to tell you what to do for all eternity. One of my sisters once told me how sick of working for her boss she was. And I said, using this text as a backdrop for my my thought process, I said, you don't work for your boss. You work with your boss. You are working to pay off your debt, working for your bills. You can say that. You, You can even say you're working for your child to be cared for. But if your boss is ruining your life, you're looking at your job wrong. Biblical servanthood is similar to that. It's not meant to be abused, nor is it meant to allow itself to be abused. It's a teamwork mentality attempting to accomplish a same goal, to be in one accord after the same passion. Similarly, this is what Paul is saying and why he writes these things. Again, Paul is writing to slaves who are Christian and masters who are also believers in Christ. But we know, and we would be naive to think otherwise, that every slave was fortunate enough to have a believing master or masters had all believing slaves. So Paul writes to the Colossian and Laodicean churches when he says in Colossians 3.22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's very similar to what he says to the church at Ephesus. They are your masters on earth. They are your boss on earth from 9 to 5 or whatever your work hours may be, Monday through Friday or whatever. 
Don't let them ruin your eternity. Remember, you serve Christ. He clarifies this by then saying to them, whatever it is you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. When we work, we obey our bosses unless the obedience to them is something sinful. And we do so with, as Paul says, fear and trembling in the sincerity of our heart as to Christ. In other words, just as Paul wrote to the children earlier in Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. So also slaves obey your masters, workers obey your boss in the Lord for this is right. The fear and trembling, by the way, is not because we're scared, but we respect the authority placed over us. Even if an employer does not deserve our respect in their own right, it should be given with genuine sincerity as we serve Christ himself. Peter also alludes to this when he writes in 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Again, over the years, this has been misunderstood and twisted and used to rationalize abuse. That is not what Paul or Peter are saying. We may not always find those in authority over us respectable. Husbands are not always worthy of a wife's respect. Parents are not always perfect in the discipline of their children. But, like I said, servanthood or submission, as it is in Scripture and as it's defined, does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean being a pushover or some kind of robot. It means to be subjected to or allowing and aiding those in authority over us to do what God has put them in their role to do. As followers of Christ, we work as though we're working for Christ himself. And we'll soon see why. Paul goes on. He says, Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The Berean Study Bible translates it as, and do this not only to please them while they are watching. And another translation says, don't work only while being watched. Why does Paul say that? Well, because in that era, there were several stereotypes regarding slaves, but one of the most popular was that slaves were lazy and would only work when they were being watched. This is what Paul's referring to, not just to work in a way that draws attention to ourselves as man-pleasers. By the way, the only time as Christians we seek to please other people is when it's done in a loving way to glorify God, to bring them into a relationship with Christ or draw them nearer to Christ. Like Paul said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's not just saying that as an apostle, by the way, but as an example for all of us. We should not work in order to glorify ourselves, but being faithful in what we do because we are working as though we are working for Christ. Because while we may, in a sense, be slaves to our bills, to our jobs, we as believers in Christ are slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The word Paul uses for heart here is different than what he said back in verse 5, by the way. In verse 6, it's different. Earlier in verse 5, he uses the word cardius, which is our emotions, our thoughts. That's where we get words like cardiac, talking about cardio exercise or cardiac arrest, which is a heart attack. 
But here he uses the word suitcase, or that's where we get our word psyche. And it means our very souls. We are slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from our souls. It is the immaterial part of us that lasts for time forward. The immortal part of us. The part of you that was changed at the point of conversion. The part of you that continues after your heart, your cardius, turns to dirt in a wooden box. It's the part that glorifies God in worship, and it's the part that will be present with him for all eternity. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul, his suitcase? It is the one thing we have that lasts, the one part of us that carries on. And Paul says, from this part of our being, from this part of our wholeness, we work as slaves of Christ above all things, doing God's will. And what is God's will? Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. There is a hierarchy in the way we are to operate in the workplace. And if you remember, this was a very common Roman mindset that we all answer to someone. So the Christian mindset then must be that in our work, in all we do, we do it all as though we're working for Christ. And then Paul goes on. He describes the work ethic of a believer. In verse 7, he says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Now Paul begins to give us instruction in how we are to work under an authority figure, not a spouse, not a parent, not a member of the church necessarily, but an employer or at least someone who's in leadership in our work. Paul says, with goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Some translations take that to mean with a good attitude. And it's simplified, but that's still accurate. No matter the task, Paul is saying, there is dignity to be had in a job well done, as it is done for the Lord with an attitude of serving him rather than serving someone else. Now, if I may draw your attention back to verse 5, it clearly says... Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And as I said, masters there is the Greek word kurios or Lord. And Paul qualifies that or, or whatever, quantifies, qualifies. I think I said it both ways with this, according to the flesh. Here he says, with goodwill, rendering our service as to the Lord, the kurios. If we understand that there is one Lord one master we're trying to appease, then we have to understand in a sense that there, that even those of us who may staunchly insist we are free, we're a slave to someone or something. In fact, the word curios is used 750 times in the New Testament. And the point that Paul is making is that slave and master, worker, employee, employer, whatever you want to say, they are two sides of the same relationship coin. And if we're in Christ, we've chosen to have one master, one being we submit to. Romans 6 through 8 goes into greater detail about this, that we are slaves to sin, but now are made alive in Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. There's no clearer picture within Romans 6 and 8 than that right there. 
Jesus also addresses this, by the way, in John 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. But a couple of verses later, he says, So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. And I can hear you right now slapping your knee. Oh, but pastor, see, that says I'm free. Yes, it does. We are free from the master of sin. In Christ, our Lord, our master, you see what we have done as Christians is we have traded an abusive master, the master of sin and shame that loves to abuse and beat us down. We've traded it for a master who loves us enough that he laid down his life for us. He would take that old master upon himself, upon the cross, that sin that was ruling over us, that was he would take that upon himself and place it on him. And when he died, through the shedding of his blood, he purchased us from that old master. If we believe in him, if we serve him, if we submit to him, you see how it works. Everybody's under somebody. And we will all stand before the Father one day, that one person of the Trinity who submits to no one. The buck stops at the throne of the Father. So again, we tie together that with what we read in Colossians earlier. Whatever we are doing, whoever we're working with, whoever we're working for, we do it as though we're rendering service as to the Lord himself, our one and true master, rather than to men. But you might be sitting there and thinking, well, what's in it for me? What's the point of doing all this for Jesus if I'm not going to get a cash in here? We aren't just working for a paycheck, surely. What's the purpose behind all of this? Well, Paul elaborates for us in our, in our text, verse 8. He says, Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Knowing whatever good thing each one does, he'll receive back from the Lord. In other words, God's rewards are appropriate to the attitude and the actions of our work. No good thing we do for his glory goes unrewarded. This is the sort of thing Jesus refers to when he says in Matthew 6, 20 and 21, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Our heart, there it is again. Our cardia, that's where our treasure is. Cardia is our emotions, that's our mindset. So when our hearts are on pleasing the Lord, while it may not pay off now, it will pay off then. You may have a horrible boss. You may have worked with horrible people. And in spite of it all, you keep your cool, you try to be positive, you try to show Jesus. And if that's the case, based on this text, you have a lot to look forward to. My wife, for example, works with public defenders. Um, she has Fort Knox waiting on her on the other side. You know, she has plenty of treasures because of attorneys. Uh, yeah, the attorneys she works with. Anyway, we, we don't do what we do for earthly gain. Jesus talks about that. He also says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you in Matthew 6, 4. It may not always be the ideal job or even the ideal career. But if it is done with the right attitude, the right heart, and done as an act of serving the Lord and not men then it is a career done right. There's an old movie where these three guys are talking about this test they had to take in high school. I actually had to take a similar test. And it's one of those career aptitude tests where you answer all these questions 
and you add up the answers and it tells you what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life. Funny story, I was supposed to be a podiatrist apparently, a foot doctor. I don't like feet. I don't know how it came to that conclusion. Uh, If you have smelly feet, please keep your socks on, right? But these guys in this movie, they're talking about this test and one of the questions was, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Now the idea behind it ultimately is that if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? Now the first guy says, I wouldn't do anything. I'd just go fishing. I'd relax at home. I'd, I'd do nothing. Well, nothing's not a career. The second guy says, well, I would just I would just invest it. I'd have my cousin who's an investor. He'd do this and that, and we'd, we'd make that one million grow. And, you know, the, the idea behind the test is if you say something like, I'd like to own land and and farm it, well, then you'd want to go to college to be a farmer or something like that. That's what one of the character, one of the third characters points out. But he says the test really isn't any good because if we all followed our dreams, if we all did what, would, what we want to do, there'd be no janitors because nobody wants to clean up vomit off the gymnasium floor. And there'd be no podiatrists because who wants to deal with stinky feet, right? The point is, I think you get it that there wouldn't be people who do the jobs that aren't satisfying, possibly. But the truth is, there are people who get stuck at jobs where they're unsatisfied or they're unhappy. So the takeaway is, if that's you, find joy in doing the job as to the Lord. And he will reward you, whether you're the worker or whether you're the boss, whether you're slave or free. And all we do, we work as though working for Christ. Finally, Paul addresses the boss or the masters. He says in verse 9, Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters, do the same things. Masters, operate with a sincere heart as you would Christ, as you would for Christ. Supervisors, don't just be nice to your employees when people are looking around or or do it in a way to placate them or satisfy them or just get them to do their job so you can look good. Managers work as though to the Lord, not just for men. Bosses do the will of God from the heart and you'll receive back from the Lord. I know some employers who would say something like, if I do that, my employees won't respect me. They'll start to walk all over me. Proverbs 16, 7 reminds us when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That won't happen overnight. But the idea behind it is let God deal with your enemies. Let God deal with that employee who wants to go their own way. Let God deal with the problem people in our lives. And that can be one of the most rewarding things we can do for ourselves. We can sit them down and try and talk things out. But if that doesn't work, let God have them. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Paul actually quotes that very verse later in Romans 12, when he's talking to Christians, and how not just to interact with one another, but with the world around them. It's not easy to let God take hold. It's not easy to let him deal with people while we serve or while we lead as best we can being obedient to him. 
It's not easy to let him have those people and deal with them and hope that the Holy Spirit convicts them. But that's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewing of your mind. You're not going to change anybody. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And I confess this this morning when I said this initially, I'll, I'll do it again here. This has been one of the hardest struggles of my life. I have had some horrible bosses in my life. But one of the most liberating things I've, I've grown to be able to do, especially over, even before I was a pastor, I was able to say, and I had a good boss prior to coming to Lisbon, but before that, I came to the point where I said, Lord, if nothing else, I submit to you, help me stop pushing back. Help me to do the best I can with integrity, to just be a good worker. I will let you deal with them and I'll stop. Can I tell you, can I confess something to you? The stress levels dropped in that instant. Believe me, God does deal with people one way or another. God is just and he is the one we should revere above all things, above all people. That's why Paul uses the words fear and trembling. Masters, when it came to their slaves, should also operate with fear and trembling. Remember, Paul is writing to believers in their actions with other believers. If a master beat his slave, he was not just beating his slave, he's beating God's slave. He's beating Christ's slaves. Same is true today. Even if your coworker isn't a Christian now, doesn't mean they won't someday be and you're mistreating a brother in Christ if you don't operate within this plan. The same way, wives, when you undermine your husband, you're undermining God's design. Husbands, when you are not loving your wife, you are not loving God's design for your marriage. When we're not raising our children in Christ, we are discipling enemies of Christ. When we're not working at our jobs as though we're working for Christ, who then are we serving? You see, God puts these things in place for a purpose, for his design, for his hierarchy. Submitting to God's design is hard at times, especially when our spouse is not that honorable, when our kids drive us nuts, when our boss is a barbarian. And over the next couple of weeks, when we don't agree with the pastor, or we think the deacons need to do things differently, we begin to undermine those things. We are going against God's design. You are not just dishonoring your wife or your husband, your mom or your dad. You're not just dishonoring your supervisor, your boss, your manager. You're not just dishonoring your your pastor or the deacon board. You are dishonoring the one who put them in their position for this time. And until we begin to recognize that, we will not see a genuine revival because we are opposing not just everyone else, but God himself in all we do. We all work as though working for Christ. Now today you may be here and you're saying, I'm retired and I love my job and I always tried to glorify God every day I was there and I always got along with everybody. And if that's the case, I think that's amazing. You can say that, but you're probably not being completely honest either. Because if you worked with people, I'm sure you can admit not every day was easy to be around other people. Just like those people will say, you weren't always that easy to be around. In my own work history, you know, one of my first jobs, I worked at McDonald's. And McDonald's, everybody thinks it's such an easy job. And man, it's an awesome job until the customers show up. 
and they're rude because they didn't want that much cheese on their cheeseburger or they didn't want salt on their fries or whatever. Working in probation, I worked as a probation officer for six and a half years. Would have been an awesome job if it wasn't for all the criminals. Working at Verizon when I sold cell phones would have been great if people just knew how to operate Facebook on their iPhones at home, right? Even when I worked in social services, I had a really great boss. I loved working for her. But even doing that job, it was great until people wanted to come in and take advantage of the system or yell at me because they didn't, you know, I had a lady one time call and yell at me because her food stamps went down $1. (laughs) I'm sure you can all say similar things or have similar stories about jobs you've had. But if we aren't careful, it quickly becomes my marriage would be perfect if it wasn't for my spouse. My home would be perfect if it wasn't for my kids. My church would be perfect if it wasn't for that one person, if it wasn't for the pastor, if it wasn't for that one board member. And the truth is we're never going to have a perfect marriage. We're never going to have the perfect home, the perfect job, or the perfect church because we are all imperfect people in need of a Savior. Yet this truth remains. We are to do the best we can, doing it as though we're doing all our work for Christ himself. Scripture tells us to love our enemies, to love our neighbors. And sometimes they're the same guy. But they'll know we're Christ's disciples by our love for one another and for the love we show for them. But do those in our workplace see us loving them when it gets hard? So this week as I close, I'm just going to ask you to to go ahead and join me in prayer. Now in, in service today, in the original recording, we, we close with communion and things like that. And, but I would just to ask you, take some time and pray that the Lord give you an opportunity to share Christ. That the Lord give you an opportunity with those you are working with to serve and honor him. And ask the Holy Spirit to bring about change in those difficult people that only he can bring. Father God, right now, I just ask for those who've listened, those who've watched this, I pray you speak to their life. I pray you encourage them, remind them of the rewards waiting on them. But Lord, I also pray that in sincere love for you, we show up at work every day doing the best we can to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.